So as I told you, when we looked forward to our summer Wednesday night worship services, I, I told you that I believe that what God would have us to do is to study together the Ten Commandments. Now, I think we probably do well to first ask, well, where did we get these Ten Commandments? In connection with what we talked about in all the Wednesday nights leading up to this, you'll remember that when God first made man out of the dirt, that first man, does anybody know his name? Kiddos, do any of you know the name of the very first man that God made? What's his name, Reagan? Adam, very good. And when God made the first man, his name was Adam, and he made him out of the dust of the ground, and he leaned down and he breathed life into him. Just like that. That this man was made in the image of God. And that part of being made in the image of God was that he was a man that was a spiritual being, that he knew God, he was able to be in communion with God, but also within that was that the law of God, the moral law of God was written upon this man's heart. But God did speak one commandment to the man. He gave him one very specific law. They might know what that law was. Yeah. Either one of y'all go. Sure. The tree of the knowledge and good and evil. Very good. God said, I am God. I will instruct you in what is good and what is bad. Your job is to love me and to live with me here in the garden. So you do not reach out your hand to this tree and take of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you do this, you shall surely what? What happens if the man reaches out his hand and he takes that fruit? What's the penalty? Anybody know? They would die. The day that you do this, you will die. Not just physically would you die, but spiritually. You will be separated from me. And we know, of course, that the man, he broke this law. He broke this rule. Under the temptation of Satan, he disbelieved God. He didn't trust in the goodness of God. So he reached out his hand, he took of the fruit of this tree, and he ate. But we remember that God was immediately there. God was immediately there with a promise, the first picture of the gospel. He told him that cursed is this serpent because of what he's done, Satan. That he will go around all the days of his life on his belly eating the dust. He told the woman that her life was going to get harder that labor pains were going to become great, that there was going to be a disjointed aspect to a relationship with her husband, the husband's life was going to be difficult, that his labor was going to become difficult for him, that thorns were going to grow up out of the soil. Life was going to be hard for all of them. But there was a promise in this. What he promised was that from that woman, he was going to bring forward the seed, a man, and that this man would crush the head of the serpent. The serpent, the devil, the enemy, the one that man had joined forces with, had chosen to follow after when he turned his back on God, that God would fix that problem by stomping the head of the serpent. You remember that God was also there to cover the nakedness. Adam and Eve, they were made without clothing. There was no shame there. They didn't need to be ashamed. But instantly as they looked down and realized their nakedness, they were ashamed. They not only hid from God, but they hid from each other. But God was there to make provision for them. He took the life of an animal, he took that skin, and he covered their nakedness. Now as the story goes on, we've talked about this on Wednesday nights, haven't we? As the story goes on, we see that the wickedness of men continued, that sin continued to abound to the point that God lamented. He was sorry that he had made man, and so he sent a great flood. He sent this great flood, and he destroyed all of life except for those that were saved within the ark. Does anybody remember the name of that man? Who was the man that God, yeah, Wyatt, who was the name of the man that God had build the ark? Noah. 
God chose Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of God. And so Noah and his sons and their wives and two of every kind of animal, they got onto this boat. God gathered them together. He closed the door and he spared them. This ark, this boat, it's a picture of Jesus. God's judgment came upon the earth. His wrath came upon the earth. But for these whom God had chosen, whose, favor had, whose God's favor had fallen upon, he spared them so that the boat took the beating, but that they were spared. Then after the flood was done, nearly a year, Noah and his family were on this boat. After the flood had completely subsided, the waters had gone down, they come out of the boat, but they weren't done with evil yet. Noah went right back to sinning. He planted a vineyard. He got drunk. He fell out naked, apparently. His son came and looked upon him, and there was something that happened there that was truly inappropriate and, and grotesque. And so we see that sin hadn't been taken care of yet. That while God was making a provision for the people, through his gracious act, he had saved some of these people, that sin was still there, that the head of the serpent hadn't yet been stomped upon. We fast forward a bit and we meet another man called Abram. This guy was a pagan. There was nothing about this man that would commend him to God. And yet God chose this man and he spoke to him. And he, he gives us a little bit more of a, of a picture of how he's going to stop the head of this serpent. He says, Abraham, even though you're an old man and you have no children, even though your wife is an old lady and she's past the point where women should be having babies, I'm going to give you as many children as there are stars in the sky. As many children as there are sand in the, in the, uh, on the seashore. And I'm going to bless the whole world through you. So the picture becomes a little bit clearer to us that this is the man, this is the family through whom God's going to do this thing that he's promised. But he promised this man called Abraham, he says, I'm going to give you a land as well. It's going to be a good land. A land that's, that's going to provide for you well. It's going to be a promised land. But he said, because the people in that land, their sin isn't completed yet. I'm going to give them some more time to keep on sinning. So what's going to happen to you, Abraham, to your family is they're going to go off into exile. They're going to be slaves in a foreign land until the sins of these men are complete. But then I'm going to call them out and I'm going to lead them to this place. So we begin to recognize that God makes promises, not to people that deserve promises, not to people that have earned the blessings of these promises, not because the people are perfect or God ever expects them to be perfect, but that the God of the universe Loves man enough that he says, I will enter into covenant, into, an, into agreement, into promise with the people that I choose. And he had chosen this family of Abraham. So we know that we have Abraham, then we have Isaac, then we have Jacob, and Jacob had sons, and his very favorite son, does anybody know this? This is a tougher one. Does anybody know what the name of, Abra of Jacob's very favorite son was? I'll give you a hint. He made for him a beautiful coat of many colors. Big kids, you can answer too. Who is it, Peyton? Oh, good try. Good try. It starts with a J. Joseph. That Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And the other brothers didn't like Joseph being the favorite. And Joseph didn't do himself any favors either. He was a bit boastful. He spoke about these lavish dreams that he had had. And so his brothers determined first that they were going to kill him, but God restrained their hand. And then they decided they were going to sell him into slavery. And so they sold Joseph, their brother. You remember I talked to you on Sunday about the fact that the Bible tells us that Joseph's brothers could not speak peaceably to him. They couldn't bring themselves to speak nicely to their brother. So they sold him, and he went off into slavery. 
For 400 years, the people were there in slavery. Does he have something? Lando, what's up? Very good. Very good. And so, they're there in slavery for 400 years. And we, and we, you'd begin to wonder, okay, well, has God, has, has God forgotten his people? Has God abandoned his promise? These people are in slavery and things are going very hard for them. And we see, even in slavery, how Satan is tempting men to try to destroy God's plan. You remember that, 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 that Pharaoh, had, he looked up and he noticed, these, these are hardy people. They're a little bit like First Baptist Church of Crosby. They keep getting pregnant and they keep having babies. And so he commanded the midwives to take the lives of these babies. And we see God's hand there as he's, as he's moving to protect his people. And he, he protects this, this one man, Peyton, and his name was, who was the guy that spoke to the burning bush? Do you remember him? Say the last name you said. Moses it is. This man called Moses. That God had had his hand all over this man's life and then he speaks to Moses and he's going to use Moses to help lead his people out of slavery and towards this good land that he had promised for them. And he does this thing. He leads the people. He redeems them. And people can get this story backwards sometimes. You see, I'm afraid that for some people, they, they have in their mind this concept that perhaps God gave the people the law and then he redeemed them. That God gave these people these rules and said, look, do you promise me you're going to keep these rules? Then I'm going to take you out of slavery. Do you promise you're going to be a good boy? Then I'm going to be your God, and then you can be my people. But that's not the story at all. What happened was God leads the people out of slavery. There was a picture there of Jesus Christ in that redemption. Remember with the Passover lamb, the blood on the, on the doorpost, on the doorframe. But we, we see as God redeems his people, he does this magnificent thing that they couldn't have possibly deserved. And now no longer is it just eight dudes on a boat. Well, dudes and women on a boat. No longer is it just a small family of 70 or 75 going in to Egypt. It's millions of people that God has now made, just as he had promised Abraham. He's not done yet, but he's, he's made this ginormous nation all of a sudden through his good hand and his working and his grace and his mercy, and they, he leads them out. And it's in the middle of that then that God comes to him and says, listen, I've redeemed you. I've purchased you. I've saved you. Now let me give you this law as a gift. And what we see there is whenever we talk about the law of God, that, that, that term can be used in very broad, very broad, uh, very broad terms right? When, when people use the law, and, and that can be confusing to us because we come to the Bible and it talks about the law, and, and sometimes the law just means the Old Testament. Sometimes the law means the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes the law means all the commandments, all the rules, all the ordinances that God gave to his people. Sometimes the law means the, the Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments. But we see specifically within the life of these people that he gave them three types of law, three types of rules, there were laws that we might call the civil law. It was going to show the, the people of Israel, these chosen people, how they're supposed to relate to each other. How do they live as a nation? How are they going to reflect God's goodness and his glory to the world around them? They were meant to be a light to the world. They were meant to reflect God's nature to the world around them. And he said, this is how you're going to do it. What happens if a, if a neighbor's bull gets out and it comes onto your property and, 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 and kills your bull? What can you expect to happen from that? What happens if you accidentally do something and take the life of somebody else? What if you murder somebody else? What, what's to be expected? How do you relate to each other with this? 
In addition to this, there's what we might call the ceremonial law. It told them not just how they're to relate to each other, but how do you relate to God? Because as I told you, God wasn't confused about who these people were. He knew that they were not done sinning. He knew that they weren't yet perfect. Remember, it was going to take the son of the woman, the seed coming and crushing the head of the serpent to deal with that problem. That had not yet happened. And so he gave them this ceremonial law, this, the ways in which they could cleanse themselves, the sacrifices they could offer to, to come into the presence of God. How can sinful man come into the presence of God? He gives them these laws to show them this picture. Now we know that the civil law, that once God no longer dealt with the political nation, once he no longer dealt with the people in those terms, that that law was abrogated. It was no more. We know the ceremonial law, these were shadows and, and, and signs and pictures that found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. As God came to dwell with us in the flesh in Jesus, as the true Lamb of God came to give his life, as the great high priest came that does not die but that, um, that lives forever to make intercession for us at the right hand of the Father. But then there was also the moral law. The moral law that I said has been written upon the hearts of men from all eternity. These laws which most fully reflect the character of God. Most of these laws, we see them repeated in one way or another in the New Testament. So these moral laws, they weren't abrogated. They weren't, they weren't in some way done away with. That Jesus Christ had come and he had fulfilled them to the very last letter. That in Jesus' coming, what he did was what man could not do. He fulfilled them, again, to the very last letter. In addition to that, he showed us that they go much deeper than the things we do out here. We just read some things about obeying your father and your mother. Children, do you think obeying your father and your mother means only doing what they tell you to do while having a grumbling heart? Surely not, right? Do you think that being faithful to your wife means only I'm not going to go smooch other women? Or does it mean I'm only going to think about my wife in that way? And so Jesus comes and he reveals to us that not only is this law things that we don't do out here, that it's, it goes much deeper. It's a spiritual law. It's a law that comes down to our very soul. And so Jesus comes and he fulfills that law and then he gives his life and he raises again that we might be set free so that we're no longer under that law, that there's, there's no law standing before us that we might ever be twisted up into thinking we've got to keep to be right with God. But it's important for us to understand that neither was that the case for Israel. That while Jesus has come and he has fulfilled the law and, and we're no longer under the law, that God's plan was never at any point that Israel would somehow keep it perfectly and thereby be redeemed and thereby be made right. We see that in evidenced in the fact that there were sacrifices. There was this expectation. There was this expectation from God that his people would do things that don't please him. That they would break these commandments even though he had so mightily redeemed them and, and been so kind to them in being their God and calling them his people. And so there was the expectation that the people would sin and that God has made a provision there. The, the picture of Jesus and, and what he provided for them. The problem was though that the people kept trying to earn favor. You see, what I've come to determine is man only has two gears with regards to the law of God. We have the gear that says, okay, you've set this before me and it's a ladder, I'm gonna climb it. I'm gonna earn favor with God. I'm gonna earn salvation with God. I'm gonna somehow put myself above others and, and climb more rungs than you with regards to the law of God. Or we become hopeless. We give up on it and we say, let's eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Generally speaking, there's two ditches that men tend to fall into. And we found that in great sense within the life of Israel that you had men that became legalistic, that they weren't trying to fulfill the law out of gratitude for God and his redemption. They weren't trying to fulfill the law as an act of faith and a, tr and a trusting um, reliance upon God. 
that they were trying to climb the ladder to get to God. While there was other times when they would just say, well, what's the point? If we can't be perfect, why try at all? And they just went the ways of the nations. I say all that to you because I think it's important that we think rightly about the law of God before we come to it. There, there, can, be this, there can be this hesitancy on the, on the part of the church as we stand on this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, knowing that Jesus has fulfilled the law. We come to passages of scripture that say that we are no longer under law, but grace. And we can believe then that there's then no rightful place for us to preach the law. There's, we have no business bringing the law of God into the place of a redeemed people like this, people who are under the grace of God, people who have placed their faith in Christ, people who find our righteousness in what he has accomplished. And so we can have a hesitancy then to bring the law before the people, to recite the Ten Commandments. I've, I've, I've heard people say that the law has no place. I, I joked earlier about Southern Baptists point, uh, posting the Ten Commandments in their foyer. There are people that think there's great offense at that. That we've got no business holding the law up before each other at any level. But what you'll find is if you go through and you study some of the great reformed uh, confessions of the ages, you'll find that somewhere between 30 and 40% of the confessions are designated to rightly understanding God's law. And I don't mean just rightly understanding the way Jesus came to fulfill the law and the way that we're now under grace and under the law. I mean the specific laws of God. Go through and look at the Westminster or the London Baptist Confession and what you'll find, there's entire segments in there that say, what does the first law command? What must we watch out for with regards to the first law? In what ways do we break the first law? Why would they do this? What, what, how should we as a redeemed people, how should we as people that are under grace, how are we supposed to think of the law? What use do we possibly have for the law of God? Am I making sense? Generally speaking, when we think about the law of God as a people on this side of the cross, we can think of it as having three uses. One of them is to curb evil, to restrain evil in this world. That both believers and non-believers, that they can hear the law of God and they can recognize the punishment that's due to them. We think about Romans 13 where Paul says that God has put authorities over us and for the vast majority of this country's life until just recently, the laws of the land mimic the laws of God. They didn't make these things up. The moral law that God had written on the hearts of men, this came out in laws like don't murder, like don't take your neighbor's stuff, like don't bear false testimony. And so the law can, can restrain evil in the lives of men, not just the unregenerate, but us as well. It's healthy for us to come to the law and be reminded of, of what God commands us to do. But the problem is that this law cannot change the hearts of men. The men come against the law. And a matter of fact, what we find is that for the unregenerate, for the non-believer, they come up against the law of God and it just increases their sin. It not only brings them to an awareness of their sin, but they push back against it. A lot like a two-year-old. You tell them they can't do something. You tell them that something is out of bounds. You tell them they can't go somewhere and they want it more. And so in, in, in some sense, it's, it's going, to, going to stir up sin in the hearts of unregenerate men, but it's, it's there to restrict sin. The second use is as a mirror. It shows us our evil. It shows us our sin. You've probably noticed that on a number of, uh, often on Sunday mornings after I read our text, that often I'll often up a, offer up a very brief prayer and I say something like, God, make your book, make this book live to me. In it, show me yourself. We're reminded that the law of God is not just a set of arbitrary rules. That what God was doing in his law is he's revealing himself and his nature the God who is utterly 
true, who is the source of all that is true, hates lying. The God who is infinitely faithful hates adultery. And so we we see that God is revealing himself to us in this law. He's showing us his infinite holiness. He's also showing, God, show me yourself, show me myself. I said it was a mirror. We hold it up and we see our filth compared to the holiness of God. We see our absolute inability to do what God commands. We should rightly recognize there's no way. If, if it was by the keeping of this law that I would be made right with God, then I'd be utterly hopeless. And that's what it brings us to Christ. It leads us to trust in Christ. Instead of bringing us to a point of hopelessness and, and antinomianism and just throwing up our hands and saying, I'll just, I'll just enjoy this life then because surely there's nothing for me in the next, it drives us to Christ. Someone else is going to have to keep this law for me because I can't do it. And so even for the, certainly for the non-believer, we hold that up. That's my hope for some of these kiddos. That they would see the law of God and they would learn to cherish it. That they would see the law of God and they would recognize the nature of God and what God commands of people, of humans made in his image. And I pray that in this, as they strive and they recognize that I, this isn't in me, I can't do this. I've heard some funny stories in the last week from certain grandmas that I will not name because then the, then the grandbabies will know which one I'm talking about. I've heard funny stories about grandbabies that say it's hard. This holiness stuff is hard. This glorifying God stuff is hard. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And hoping that that drives them to Christ. That drives them to see the one who is perfectly holy. That it drives them to, to praise the one that has done what they couldn't. That drives them to worship. And then the third use is, I said it's, it's, it acts as a curb to, to set barriers and to restrain sin. I said that, that it acts like a mirror and it acts like a lantern or a flashlight for the believer. Because we, we, must, resent at all, we must resist at all costs any temptation, I say, to come to the law and try to climb it like a ladder. We must resist any temptation to take this law and beat other people with it and, and try to bring them under a sense of condemnation. But it lights our path. Is a people that has been saved by God, driven by a sense of love and gratitude. We want to walk in holiness. Not to earn anything. Not to avoid condemnation so that we can come to the law of God. That's my hope for the believers in this room. As we study these laws, we have 10 weeks. So we're going to study the first commandment tonight. And I promise, I'm going to be very, very quick now. We, we, we come to these laws and that you see them not as some threat from God to you. You see them as a thing that has been perfectly accomplished by Jesus Christ, your Savior. It drives you to thankfulness in him, and then you say, and in this way, I'm going to walk in holiness. That there is certainly a place for the law. You remember what the great commandment was? It's not that just that you go out and baptize. It's that you're making disciples and teaching them to obey all things that Christ has commanded. We come to Hebrews 12, and it says that we're to shed every weight of sin so that we can run this race well. How do we know what sin is? How do we know what we're meant to be shedding if we don't hold these up? Okay, I did just look at my clock, and goodness. Okay, so the first commandment is this, that you're to have no other gods before me. He, he begins by saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. We see the blessing of God. We see the redemption of God. We see the good hand of God even before the giving of the law. You remember that that was a promise from God to Abraham that I will be your God and you will be my people. There's no greater blessing than that. To have God be your God. And he says here that as your God, you're to have no other gods before me. 
Now, to say have no other gods before me, this doesn't mean you can have other gods, but I've got to be the top god. I've got to be the best god. I've got to be the biggest god. This can also be translated as you're to have no other gods besides me. Like zero other gods. I am the only real God. And we know that God is a jealous God. The right kind of jealous. Because he is what's greatest. We know that God's jealousy for his own name. His zeal for his own glory. The fact that he says, I am God and there is no other. My glory I will give to no one else. That the purpose behind that is not just for his glory, although that's the highest purpose. It's also for our good. Because he's built us in a way that nothing else will ever satisfy us. So in this first commandment, really the root of all that we're meant to be and meant to know is that as we strive after his glory, we will find satisfaction. And that the call is the call not to settle for anything less, not to settle for anything other, that he is to be our only God. And he knows this about us, that we're not always going to be a people that makes idols for ourselves, wooden idols and, and, and stone idols, that oftentimes the idols are the idols of our heart. That's what we see in Ezekiel 14, 3. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and set a stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. I don't remember who it was, but some great theologian said that man's heart is an idol factory. We are constantly generating idols. Not bad things, good things. Good gifts from God, like our children, like our marriage, like our ministry. We make these, these things into gods. We start to worship these things. And so we've got to be on guard against good things and allowing them to become the focus, the object of our worship, the thing that we obsess about, the thing that we're willing to sell out all other, coming to worship, honoring God, obeying him in exchange for these. We must also strive to think rightly about God. You see, there's this nature within man that even when we strive to know God, if we're not careful, we'll find that we're making a God of our own liking. We're building a God of our own, in our own image. That we're striving after a God that is not. Jeremiah 4.22 says, For my people are foolish. They know me not. They are stupid children. They have no understanding. They are wise in doing evil. But how to do good, they know not. That men are all too likely to follow after a God of their own making. They'll call him Yahweh. They'll call him God the Father of Jesus Christ. But he's nothing like God as he's revealed himself in Scripture. And so how do we know if we've done this? How do we know if we've, if we've made an idol out of something that is not God? How do we know if our wife or our career or our children have become gods to us? Well, there's a question that R.D., you and I sat together at lunch and we asked this, and then Carrie Camp was eavesdropping on us, and so he posted it on Facebook. The question was, and we all stole it from Sinclair Ferguson, so it's okay. The question was, what do you think about when you have nothing else to think about? First thing in the morning, where does your heart go? When you lay down at life, where do, at night, where does your heart go? In those rare moments, and I know it's very rare moments these days, but I would encourage you to find those moments. I would encourage you to find time when there is no iPad, there is no phone, there is, and you are just sitting alone with your thoughts. That's a healthy test. That's a healthy examination. The question is, where does your mind go? What do you think about when you have nothing to think about? I'm not telling you that for your for your mind to go to your wife is a problem but you must ask yourself in what way am I thinking about my wife am I thinking about her just in the way she can serve me and please me and make me happy or am I seeing her as a gift from God am I seeing as an act of worship the way I can serve her and enjoy her company and so one of the tests is we do this 
How, how, do, how do we resist when we see that there are these idols that are, coming, that are coming against us, these idols that are creeping into our heart? Augustine says that I do not allow my heart to get attached to anything that might be taken against my will. We look around and we say, okay, what do, the thought of losing this makes me anxious. The reality is, if that thing that you're anxious about losing is a thing that you could actually lose, it just might be a false god. Do you understand? You cannot lose God. Let me clear it up because I see some confused faces. You cannot lose God. As you come to him in repentant faith, you're joined to him for all eternity. He can't be lost. You cannot lose heaven. You cannot lose his love. You cannot lose his grace that he is upon you and that he is with you for all eternity. You know what you can lose? Stuff. And so if the thing that you find yourself anxious about losing is a thing you can lose, that thing might be a God. You see how you get free of anxiety pretty quickly? The only thing worth worrying about losing are the things you can't lose, namely God and the things of God. And so we hold on to the things of this world loosely. We, we guard our mind and we guard our hearts. And then the absolute greatest defense, and I'm going to finish up here, the absolute greatest defense that we have, it is not to try and hate the good gifts of this world. It's not some type of asceticism where we go off and become a monk or we beat our body physically in some way or we abstain from God's good gifts, although there's certainly a place for fasting and realigning our hearts, realigning our bodies and, and, and our priorities. There's a, there's a place for these for a season. But the reality is that the only hope you have in resisting the idols of this world, resisting the false gods of this world, not creating more false gods for yourself, is seeing God as he is and spending time with him. While worship is an incredible gift from God. If we can hold up, if I can hold up God before you as he is, if we can sing songs to God as he is, if we can display for our children who God really is, we give them the greatest inoculation there is to false gods because they'll taste what's best. I've talked before about my love of lamb chops. Once I tasted lamb, I didn't care about anything else. So when I go to Fogo to Chow and the guy brings me chicken, get that chicken out of my face. Steak? Nah. Give me the good stuff. Bring me the lamb. So that once you've tasted God, you've been satisfied by what he is for you and what he has for you, all of a sudden, the other stuff just doesn't seem to do it anymore. So that's our greatest defense. In addition to watching our hearts, in addition to monitoring our thoughts, in addition to not holding on to anything in this world too tightly, our greatest defense in making sure that we have no other gods before God is being with God, seeing God as he really is. Asking him to give us eyes to recognize his goodness and his all-satisfying nature. Okay. Guys, y'all did so good. Look at me. Every one of y'all ding-dongs. Y'all did so good. I'm proud of you. Let me pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you for this day and I thank you for this church and I thank you for this family you've given us and I thank you for this time in your word. I thank you for your law. Father, I, I wish that I could say with all sincerity that I delight in your law and that it's, that it's sweeter than honey to my, to my lips. That's not true, but I desire that because I know that your law is good. So Father God, I pray that if these children have heard nothing else tonight, could they hear this, that there's only one God in the whole universe and he is good. Better than anything else this world has to offer, there's only one God and you are him. Help us to see you, help us to know you, help us to love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.